We all have friends, relatives, neighbors, and coworkers who see the world a little bit differently than we do. They have different perspectives, opinions, and beliefs, many of which hold on to those beliefs with the same sincerity and devotion as we hold on to our faith as Christians. Jesus asked us to love our neighbor, to be kind to them, to help them, to respect and embrace them, even when they don't believe what you do. One of the most important ways that we can do this is to understand that their faith is an important part of their life. This enables us to have a respectful conversation with them about their faith and that we can share our faith in Jesus with them. This is why understanding your friend's faith is so important. Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you. Thanks for being here today. One of the first rules of good speech making is you always start with something to create some tension in the room. So here's what I'm going to do today. I'm going to talk about one of the most delicate, sensitive, misunderstood, misrepresented, sensationalized, politicized, controversial, and perhaps one of the most volatile subjects in the current social conversation. How's that? And just to make things even more interesting, I have to do this in about 35 minutes. Today we're going to talk about the faith of Islam, and trying to talk about Islam in 30 minutes is virtually impossible, but we're going to try to give it our best time. Now we actually have a few more minutes than 30 or 35 minutes, because I want to spend some time at the end of the service uh, introducing you to a good friend of mine who was born in a Muslim home, raised as a Muslim, and has a wonderful story to tell, and I'm looking forward for you to get to meet him. So today we're going to tackle, tackle the topic of Islam in our series, and here's what we need to know. The topic of Islam is currently one of the most complicated, complex, controversial subjects in the entire social conversation, and it, it's been this way for decades, and I have a very limited amount of time, so two things become true. Number one is we can't cover it all. I'm going to just be able to give you sort of the highlights of what you need to understand to better understand your friend who may be Muslim, and the second thing is we're going to have to go really, really fast. So make sure that your tray table's in the upright lock position, that your seatbelt's securely fastened, and that your luggage is stowed carefully in the overhead bin, because we're going to have to move very, very quickly. So those of you who may just be joining us today, we're in part three of a series of messages entitled Understanding Your Friend's Faith. And at the very center of this entire discussion over these five weeks is the single greatest command or instruction of our Savior, Jesus Christ, us as Christians believe that Jesus gave us this very clear instruction, that is we are to love our neighbor. Now, two things I want to highlight about this particular instruction. First of all is the fact that it is a verb, meaning that Jesus was giving us the instruction to demonstrate love to our neighbor in and, um, practical and very tangible sorts of ways. This is not a noun where he's saying, I want you to have a general sense of goodwill toward other people, that I want you to generally like other people. No, he's giving us the instruction that we are to demonstrate in loving words and loving deeds our deep appreciation and admiration for other people. And the second thing that Jesus made very clear is that our neighbor is everybody. 
Our neighbor is anybody. It doesn't matter if they're uh, somebody that we work with or somebody we go to school with or someone that lives uh, down the street from us or people in our community, complete strangers that we encounter in restaurants or at the grocery store. We have one responsibility as Christ followers, and that is to love our neighbor. And in this particular series, we're talking about the challenge of how does a Christian love somebody who believes very differently than them? How does a Christian love somebody who may behave or live a very different life than they do? Because what I have found in 30 years of being a pastor is that Christians don't always do a very good job at loving somebody, particular, particularly if they have very different beliefs from a Christian or if they live a very different religious kind of life. Christians don't know how to do that very well. And I want to make sure that here at Cibolo Creek, we get really, really good at loving our neighbors when they don't believe what we believe or live like we live. And so in this series, what I'm asking for is that the first step to loving our neighbor well is understanding their faith and having a sincere and genuine respect for how important their faith is to them, even though it may be different than ours. Having a genuine understanding of what is their faith all about, where does it come from, and why is it so important to them, and what are the particular beliefs and practices, the more and better we understand that, the better we can go about showing them our love. And then if we just have a deep respect for the fact that it is important to them, But folks, this shouldn't be um, odd to us because we as Christ followers, we want the exact same thing. We want people to understand our faith. We want people to have a knowledgeable understanding of what we believe and how we go about expressing our belief in God and our faith in Jesus Christ. And we want people to respect our decision to be Christ followers, whether they embrace it or agree with it or not. We want them to at least respect that it's important to us. So all we're asking is that we as Christ followers learn to understand and respect different faiths as we encounter them as expressions of the love of Christ in and through our life. And then in this series, what we're doing is we're looking at some different faiths that we encounter in the course of our lives right here in the areas in which we live. And so last week, Matt um, looked at the faith of uh, Buddhist and what that is about and sort of where the origins of that come from and how that is similar and how that's very different from our faith as Christians. Today, we're going to talk about the faith of Muslims. Next Sunday, I want to tackle the topic of the Mormon faith. And um, it's fascinating. I called the Mormon uh, temple uh, this week. I wanted to um, spend some time visiting with someone about some things that I'm going to be sharing in my message, and I just wanted to verify. And, and the woman who answered the phone, um, I was trying to explain her, to her what I wanted. I said, I'm a pastor. I live at Sibylla Creek Community Church. I live in Fair Oaks Ranch. And she goes, oh, yeah, where? I live in Fair Oaks Ranch. And so these folks live around us and believe differently than we do, and we need to understand and respect their faith and their life. And then in the last week of the series, Matt is going to tackle the topic of the faith of atheists. And so um, this is really, really, really important today that we understand this nature of love your neighbor even when our neighbor believes something very different. And it's especially important in relationship to this topic today because there's so so much misunderstanding about the Muslim faith and its place in people's lives. So I want to begin this and make sure we have a clear understanding. There's no exceptions to the rule of love your neighbor. Do you get that? 
There's no exceptions. There's nothing in the scripture that says, well, if a person believes this or if a person lives this way, that somehow that rule is exempt from this person. That is not true. We are always invited to love our neighbor as representatives of Jesus Christ. And so if that's true, then what we have to understand is things like prejudice and racism and bigotry and xenophobia, they have absolutely no place among Christ's followers. We can't build our understanding of other people on stereotypes and simply prejudge them in advance based on some things that we've heard about some people. And we can't judge people by the race that they are, and we can't judge people just because of the fact they might be from some other country and we're suspicious of them. This has no place in a Christian community because Christ asked us to love all of our neighbors. And the reason I'm making such a big deal about this at the beginning is that Prejudice, particularly as it relates to Muslims, is rampant in America. I spend enough time on social media, places like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. I spend enough time watching the mainstream media and how they handle this particular topic. And I see Christians all the time in discussions that are genuinely prejudicial toward Muslims. And it looks like this, if we're honest. It looks like things like all Muslims are terrorists. That all Muslims are somehow a threat and a risk to American safety. That all Muslims hate America and hate Americans. And I'll tell you, that is absolutely false. Millions and millions of Muslims who live in the United States of America absolutely love the fact of the opportunity that they've been presented in our country. And all Muslims embrace Sharia law at the expense of the Constitution and the Western law that we honor here in the United States. And again, that is not true. And we have to be crystal clear on that in order to genuinely understand and appreciate our role as Christians in relationship to our neighbors and friends who may be Muslim. So one other thing I want to make sure we're crystal clear about before we get too far into our discussion today is that when it comes to any religion, I don't just name it, Hindu religion, the Jewish religion, uh, Mormon religion, Christian religion, whatever religion that you're talking about, you will always find representatives on both ends of the spectrum. You will find people who are wonderful beautiful examples of what it is that they believe. And they embody the ideas and the best values of what it is that their faith teaches them. And then in that same spectrum, you can find plenty of representatives from any faith in the world that are negative and um, detrimental reflections of what it is to be a Buddhist or what it is to be a Muslim or what it is to be a Mormon. But this is true of Christians too. And when we start talking about religion, what we basically see on this line between positive and negative is that many people are very nominal about their faith, Christians particularly. We understand just enough, we do just enough to sort of call ourselves a Christian or to call ourselves a Buddhist or to call ourselves a Mormon, very nominal in our faith. And then what you have are some people are incredibly devout very deeply committed to living out the ideas and the instructions of the particular faith that they follow. And in every case, there's always a group of people 
who are extremists in their understanding and the application of their faith. And they take their laws and they take their instructions and they take their, 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 um, the essence of what they believe to an extreme that it was never intended. And it's a lousy example and a dangerous example of the particular faith that they represent. Does that make sense? So here's the deal that we have to understand when it comes to Muslims. Muslim faith, faith of Islam, represents 1.8 billion people on planet Earth. That's about 24% of the world's population. It's currently the second largest religion in the world, second to Christianity, which is about 2.4 billion people, or 33% of the world's population. So we're talking about an enormous group of people who identify with a particular religion and a particular faith. But here's what we have to get. Of this 1.8 billion people who identify as Muslims, you have to understand that generally what they know about their faith is a deep respect for life, a deep respect for human dignity, a sensitivity and allowance for the freedom of religion and conscience, whatever your religion might be, and a freedom of thought and expression. This is generally what most Muslims understand about the teachings of their faith. And there is a very small group of people in the Muslim religion, very small percent, if you can even make sense of that number, in relationship to this 1.8 billion, who take their faith in Islam to an extreme that is dangerous and harmful to other people. This is a group of people we might refer to as Islamic terrorists. It's a very small portion of the 1.8 billion people around the globe who live their lives with a sense of these sorts of values and these sorts of priorities. But unfortunately, in our mainstream media, what gets most of the attention? This little red dot right here. Now, some of that makes sense because sometimes what happens is very newsworthy and noteworthy, and it deserves a lot of attention because of the calamity that it creates. But our media spends so much time focused on this one very small expression of the faith of Islam that we never hear much about this. And we have to be very careful because too much time and attention focused on this is what leads to the dangerous prejudice that keeps us from loving our neighbors well if we know that they're Muslim. So today, as quickly as I can, we're going to just sort of cover the highlights of the faith of Islam. And while I cannot cover it all because it's so complicated and so complex in some regards, we're going to look at three things. To understand the faith of your Muslim friend, there's really three important um, discussions. We have to understand a little bit about the prophet Muhammad. We have to understand a little bit about the Quran. And we have to understand a little bit about the essence or the essential elements of the faith. Of Muslims. Make sense? Are you still with me? Okay, so this is where we're going to go fast. Okay, you ready? So let's understand a little bit about the prophet Muhammad. Muhammad was born somewhere around 570 AD, lived to about 632, so died somewhere at the age of 62 or 63 years old. Had a very interesting life as a child. Um, his father died before he was born. His mother ended up dying when he was just six years old. He was then placed in the care of a grandfather. His grandfather died two years later when Muhammad was eight years old, and then he was placed in the care of an uncle. 
who raised him for the rest of his life. Now, many Muslims take that kind of tumultuous upbringing as an understanding that it was, in fact, God who raised Muhammad to prepare him for his very sacred responsibility, and that was introducing Islam to the world. Uh, Muhammad is the messenger of God. He's absolutely critical to everything Muslims understand about their faith. He is the primary spokesman on behalf of God to the people. Uh, Muhammad is regarded as the last and the greatest prophet of 25 prophets that are mentioned in the Quran. So there are 25 specific prophets mentioned in the Quran. There are some others that are allowed for, but 25. And it's interesting, if you look at those 25 prophets that are mentioned about 22 or 23 of them are names that you'll recognize from our Bible. Adam and Moses and David and Solomon and Jesus, all part of the prophetic um, lineage of the prophet uh, of the faith of Islam. But Muhammad is regarded as the last of those prophets and superior to the rest by virtue of the role that he played in the faith. The sayings and deeds of Muhammad are revered as a model lifestyle for all Muslims to follow. And in doing so, they become successful both in this life and the afterlife. So Muslims are seeking to emulate the life as modeled by Muhammad. And then finally, while Muhammad is highly regarded in Islam as the supreme example of a virtuous life, as my friend Hussam describes, that Muslims believe that Muhammad was the greatest human being who was ever created. So as he's regarded as the supreme example of a virtuous life, he is not worshipped by Muslims. It's very important that we understand this, this particular point. God and God alone is worshipped by Muslims, and it's very offensive to them if someone suggests that Muslims worship Muhammad. They do not. They worship God. Muhammad happens to be the most important of the prophets among the faith. All right? Make sense? Did you get that? All right, let's move on to the next one, the Quran. The Quran is the central religious text of Islam. This is what they would consider to be their sacred or holy scriptures for guidance. Um, there's also another uh, collection of writings or reports called the Sunnah that um, uh, document the words and the actions of Muhammad because, again, following his example is such an important part of the faith that much um, work has been done to sort of record his life and what he's done. Um, the Quran is believed to be the, revelate, uh, the verbatim words of God, exactly what God wanted to say, and it was revealed to Muhammad through the angel Gabriel. So when they look at the Quran, they look at this as the verbatim words of God to give them guidance for life. The religious and social tenets of Muhammad, established with the help of the Quran, form the foundations of Islam. So when you take the example of Muhammad and you take the instructions provided in the Quran, you have the beginning workings of these central tenets of the faith of Islam. All right? And then finally, let's look a little bit at the faith itself. Islam is a mon, uh, monotheistic religion, meaning it preaches only one God. It doesn't believe in a trinity. It's a monotheistic religion. God is the greatest, the strongest, the most capable, um, and only God. He's, uh, and it teaches that there's only one God, and Muhammad is his prophet. This is central to the faith of, of Islam. 
The word from which the religion derives its name means submission to God. And then that translates. A Muslim is the word for an adherent to Islam and, and one who submits to the will of God. So what we need to appreciate about our Muslim friends and neighbors is they understand themselves as people pursuing a life that reflects God's will for them. This is so important to them. And we as Christians have to understand and appreciate the passion behind how they go about living their life as Muslims. The three major dimensions of Islam include beliefs, ritual practices, and efforts to improve one's character and actions. Now, that shouldn't be all that odd to us. We as Christians, we have a set of beliefs that we seek to understand and integrate into how we look at our world and ourselves and God and, and life. Um, we have a set of practices. We just observed one of them. One of them is called communion. Another one's called baptism. Some people look at going to church on a Sunday as part of the practices of our faith. And it's very important for a Christian to understand the transformation of our character and our life lived in obedience to the will of God. Now, we may have very different understandings about how we go about that and how that's accomplished, but we can appreciate a Muslim faith in the sense that they, too, are looking for change and development of character because they want so much, it's such an important part of their faith, to be good people. And then finally, Islam stresses the supreme importance of virtue, love, and joy, and generosity. These are so important to them. These are things modeled by Muhammad and teaches a final judgment where the righteous, and I'm using this word to describe people who have lived good lives, the righteous are awarded paradise, and the unrighteous, people who have not lived good lives, are punished in hell. This is a central tenet of the, of the Muslim faith. So what I want you to get from that quick overview is that Muhammad is extremely influential in their understanding of how to go about living their faith. The Quran is extremely influential in their understanding about how to go about living their faith. And ultimately, what is so important to our Muslim friends and neighbors is living a good life because a good life has enormous implications to how they will experience the afterlife or eternity. Does that make sense? So to really understand the essence of their beliefs, there's two things that you have to really have some sort of a working knowledge of. The first is called the six pillars of faith. And we're just going to cover this very briefly. They have... Um, these beliefs that are central to their faith, the oneness of God, meaning there's only one God that exists in the entire universe and he's worthy of our worship. They believe in the active presence of angels at work in the world today on behalf of God serving as messengers and accomplishing his plan. The books of God, the Quran, and also the Sunnah, these are important influences um, and central to the, their faith. The prophets of God, the ones that are listed in the scriptures and in the Quran, and particularly um, Muhammad. Then this idea that all human beings will someday stand before God and give an account on their life. And this is incredibly significant to how an, uh, a Muslim goes about living his life. And then finally, they have this understanding that this one God is actively involved in all of the affairs of their life, both good and bad. 
And so a Muslim has this very generous spirit that even when life is bad, they believe it to be from God, and God is using it as a test to see what kind of choice they'll make. So God is actively involved in their life every single day. This is an important part of their theological premise from which they operate. Do you get all that? Okay, and then finally, it's very important that you understand the five pillars of Islam. This is basically um, these obligatory expressions of their worship of this one true God that they understand, and these are central to how they go about living their life. And the first one is the declaration or the testimony, and that is where it all begins, is that they declare that there is no deity except God, and Muhammad is the messenger of God. This is central to their faith. In fact, any person who wishes to convert to Islam, they must begin with this declaration first. They must declare publicly that they too have come to believe that there is no deed except God and that Muhammad is the messenger. Second, prayer is absolutely essential in the expression of their faith. So Muslims are committed to praying five times a day, and they must face Mecca because it's a sacred or holy site to them. This is a very, very important practice in Muslims' life. Thirdly, charity. The Quran gives them specific instructions that they are to give 2.5% of their income and then be willing to be voluntarily um, generous in other expressions. Generosity is an enormous part of their faith. In fact, a part of it is required of them. Just saying maybe we could learn some things from that. Um. And then fasting, fasting is important. From dawn to dusk during the month of Ramadan, Muslims will cease from all activities of eating or drinking and then other important expressions of life as a time of a very holy and sacred focus in their life. And then finally, they have the pilgrimage. This is the obligation that they're required to visit Mecca, which is in Saudi Arabia, and at least do this once in their lifetime if they are able to do that physically. This is an important expression of their living and obedience to what was revealed to Muhammad in the Quran. Did you get all of that? So here's the deal. We come back to that big circle of 1.8 billion Muslims in the world, and here's what I want you to understand. Here's what we share in common. Just like most Christians seek to live a life of joy through expressions of love and compassion and peace, Muslims seek the very same kind of life from the faith in which they place their trust. Do you get that comparison? We as followers of Jesus Christ, we want to live a life of joy. That's part of our desire. And in the structure of our faith as Christians, we know the place of love, compassion, and peace with other people as being so important to that. All I'm saying is that if we're going to understand our Muslim friends and neighbors, we must appreciate the fact that as Muslims, they live within a framework that they place their trust. And they're seeking the same thing. They just want a life of joy. They want to live a life of love, a life of compassion, a life of peace with other human beings. They want that as badly as you want that. However, there are also some significant differences between our faiths. 
And our promise to you in this series was that we would do our best to educate you on the fundamental or essence of each faith. We'd show you a bit of what we share in common, and then we'd take a few minutes, not as a criticism or a critique, but just simply highlight what are some of the differences between the different faiths and our faith as Christians. And it's very important that we understand the major distinction between Christianity and Islam. My good friend Hussam that you're going to read, uh, meet here in a few minutes, um, he said this to me over lunch a few weeks ago. He says, Muslims believe that to pass the test of a good life is paramount. Muslims live each and every day in each and every situation believing that it is a test from God. How they relate to their kids how they go about their marriage, the foods that they eat, the kinds of things that they think about, the ways that they are involved in other people's lives. These are all tests, and God is trying to determine if they're going to make good choices or bad choices, if they're going to do good things or bad things. These choices are a test of a good life, and this is extremely important. Muslims want to pass the test so that they are found to be good. Do you get that? So that plays out in their life in some very, very particular ways. Well, I'm going to just tell you this. Whenever you get around the topic of religion, I don't care what religion it is. It could be the Jewish religion, the Hindu religion, the Mormon religion. Yes, even the Christian religion. When you make this equation, you're asking for trouble. The, question, the, the equation is this, that in my spiritual devotion... I'm going to do my religious obedience, and that, in fact, has an influence on how I experience eternity. Jews do this. Hindus do this. Buddhists do this. Muslims do this. And guess what? So do Christians. Many Christians live under the misunderstanding that in their love for God or their hopes to love God, they're going to obey all the things that they understand religiously. They're going to go to church, and they're going to sing the songs, and they're going to pray the prayers, and they're going to, they're going to put the money in the offering plate, and they're going to go sign up as a volunteer and serve with Habitat for Humanity because this religious obedience is an expression of their spiritual devotion. And many people in all faith end up doing this with the belief that somehow that's going to determine how they will experience eternity. Christians think, if I go to church and I read my Bible and I pray the prayers and I put the money in the offering plate and I live a good life and I do the right things, that I'll go to heaven when I die. It just so happens that in the faith of Islam, this is central to their entire understanding of their faith. So here's the great contrast. The contrast between Christianity and Islam is the difference between grace versus merit. At the center of our faith as Christians is this idea of God's outrageous grace toward us. That we never earn, we are never deserving of the salvation and the forgiveness that we receive from him. It is simply out of the extraordinary kindness of God's love that he extends salvation to us that he grants us forgiveness, that he gives us the gift of eternal life. 
In the Muslim faith, their understanding is that they must earn that. They must deserve that by living a life that is good. And I want to tell you, that is exhausting. If you look at one of the most profound verses in the entire Bible when it comes to the gospel, it reminds us that there's a difference between grace and works. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, the Apostle Paul declares for the church to understand historically, it is by grace that you've been rescued from the penalty of your sin. It is by grace that you've been reunited into a relationship with God as his sons and daughters. It is by grace that you have received the gift of eternal life in heaven with God. It is by grace. And that is through faith, simply placing our trust in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. And this is not anything that we come up with ourselves. This is not anything that we earn. This is not anything that we energize from within. It is a gift of God. God simply bestows his outrageous grace on us when he saves our soul from our sins simply because we place our faith in Jesus Christ. This is not by works. This is so central to the gospel that there isn't anything that anybody can ever do to earn God's love, God's grace, God's forgiveness, God's salvation, God's gift of eternal life. This is so important for us to understand. And it's so important for our Muslim friends and neighbors to understand. But the journey of helping them to understand that one is a very delicate and a very sensitive one, and we as Christians must be very careful in knowing how to navigate those delicate discussions to be able to understand those important tenets of our faith as Christians. Does that make sense? So here's another way that I might explain to you. Um, religion, most any other religion in the world, whatever one you're talking about, religion is often spelled D-O. It's about what you do. Most religions are built on a foundation of performance. You have to do these things in order to get God to love you. Christianity is notably different. Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E. It's about what Jesus Christ has already accomplished when he died on the cross to provide a satisfactory payment for sin before a righteous God. And when you and I place our trust in what Jesus has done, then we receive the gift of God's grace, his forgiveness, and the salvation that comes with it. And that is the enormous difference of Christianity from any other religion in the world that promotes this idea that I must, in my spiritual devotion, do my religious obedience in order to know that I'll spend eternity with God. Do you see the difference? huge. So I want to take just a minute. I want to talk to you about how, how do I go about loving my Muslim friend and neighbor well? Years ago, I had to make some choices as a pastor. I had to make some choices to determine a few things about my own life or this role as a pastor was going to literally drive me crazy. Because I wasn't long into ministry before I began to understand that, they, that the role of a pastor came with an enormous amount of expectations. 
So I had to make three decisions. The first decision was this. I couldn't be anybody but myself. I just had to be me. I couldn't be everybody's favorite pastor that they grew up with. I couldn't be everybody's favorite pastor from the church in Oregon before they moved here to San Antonio to work for USAA. I can't be that pastor. I I can't be the favorite pastor who writes all the books and has the radio program that they listen to every day. I, I I can just be me. Just try my best to do a good job of what God created me to be. Um, um, my apologies. The second thing that I decided a number of years ago is that I couldn't build this church by myself. I couldn't shoulder the responsibility of the success of Cibolo Creek all alone. If our church was going to have an enormous influence in our community and around our world, it would take hundreds of other people alongside of me who would give their time and their talent their money, and step into the work of this church to help it thrive. The third and perhaps the most important thing I had to decide years ago was I couldn't make other people's choices for them, and I certainly couldn't shoulder the responsibility of other people's choices. You see, the best I could do is offer some advice. The best I could do is try to explain what the scriptures teach with the hope that they'll make good choices based on that truth. But in the end, if they made choices that I would not have advised or made choices that I believed to be contrary to the scriptures, I just had to step back and understand they're big people, they're adults, they're intelligent, and they're making choices, and it's their life, and it's not mine. And while I may have concern and care about the choices they make, I couldn't shoulder emotionally the responsibility of somebody choosing to marry somebody that I wouldn't have suggested or going about a business adventure that I didn't think was wise. Does that make sense? So that begins to have practical impact on how I relate to people of different faiths. That rather than being scared or intimidated or insecure about what they believe in relationship to what I believe, I just had to accept that they're big people. They're adults and they're capable. And they've just made choices differently than I've made choices. And then they'll have to live with those choices. And so that allows me to approach somebody of a different faith very differently. You see, what I've learned from experience is that most Christians approach discussions about different faiths out of criticism and condemnation. You're wrong, and you're going to hell, and that's not going to work, rather than out of a sense of compassion and concern. And that's enormously different. I've been allowed to be able to approach people of different faiths out of compassion and concern because I realize that I ultimately am not responsible for the choices that they choose to make. And so out of my enormous curiosity of other people in their lives, I just take a sincere interest in the specific beliefs and practices of different religions. I I just find it fascinating. I don't think that there's any topic I can't explore. Like, please, tell me what what you believe. Tell me why you do the things that you do. Tell me why you wear the things that you wear. Tell me about the ways that you worship. I'm just interested, sincere. There's, There's nothing to threaten my faith in Jesus Christ. Secondly, curiously explore the similarities and the differences between religions. That's one of the fun discussions is tell me about your faith and I'll tell you about my faith and I'll show you how, and you can show me how they're different and then in ways that they're similar. And then finally, humbly discuss the benefits and advantages between different religions. 
When you can get to the benefits and the advantages of why your faith is so special to you, then you begin to create something very interesting to somebody who may have a very different experience when locked into their particular release, beliefs or religions. So in a few minutes, I want to introduce you to my friend Hussam. I've had the opportunity to sit down with him on a couple of occasions, and here's some lessons that I've learned from Hussam that I thought might be valuable to you. The first one is, Muslims are suspicious that Christians only help them to convert them. You know why they're suspicious of that? Because it's true. <laughs> you see, what happens there is too often Christians treat Muslims like projects instead of people. And that, my friend, is a lousy reflection of the command of Jesus Christ to love our neighbor. Secondly, the best way to introduce a Muslim to Jesus is to love them unconditionally. No strings attached, no expectations, no timetables, nothing that they have to show you. You just love them by being kind and compassionate and caring and patient with them. And then thirdly, don't invite Muslims to church right away. This takes a lot of time. Love them unconditionally, and they will ask to come to your church with you because they have found that you love them, not because you're trying to convert them. Uh, Hussam was explaining that church, like you and I experience on a Sunday, is so different than how a Muslim experienced worship. That they would stand here in the room without the, you know, the, the environment of you having loved them well. They would stand in here and they'd be completely confused and perhaps even deeply offended at how we go about our worship in relationship to how they understand worship. One of the things I thought was so fascinating, he said, you know, most Christians, if they bring a Bible to church, where do they put it while they're singing? They put it on the ground. That is deeply offensive to a Muslim because they hold the Quran in such high regard. They would never think of setting God's revelation on the ground that's dirty where people walk. So we have so many things to learn about how to create an atmosphere that would be welcoming and engaging to our Muslim friends. And to help us with that, we've had the wonderful privilege of getting to know Hussam. And I'm going to ask if he come and join me here on the platform. We're going to take a few minutes to speak with him. Yes. <coughs> I came this way. We'll get the hug right this time. <laughs> yeah. Come on in here. Have a seat. This is Hussam Yazbek. Yes. Did I say it right? Yeah, I'm Hussam Yazbek. Yeah. Yes, thank That's you. Have fine. a seat. <laughs> now, I have a lot of awesome friends, and one of my coolest friends, I always tell a story, he grew up in the shadows of Wrigley Field. That's a big deal. Right? And then Hassam told me something today, and it just totally surpasses that. Tell us about the street where you grew up on. Yeah, I grew up in Damascus, in uh, the uh, street called Straight. You know when Paul came to Damascus and went to that street? This is my neighborhood. So I born in that That was area. his neighborhood. <laughs> so I think that outdoes Wrigley Field. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. I would still call it a straight street. The straight now. street. Yeah. Is the street, in fact, straight? Or? Yes, it's straight. Yeah? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it goes between the west gate of the old citadel of Damascus to the east gate. So it's straight. You can read about that in Acts chapter 9. No, yes. 
So some history there. So tell us a little bit about you. So you grew up in Damascus. Tell us a little bit about your family. I grew up in, in a Muslim devoted family, Sunni. And um, we used to practice Islam like exactly as many Muslims devoted. Mom and dad. And, and I have, yeah, mom and dad. And I have seven sisters and three brothers. And I am the youngest. You're the youngest of three <laughs> brothers and seven sisters. Seven sisters, yeah. We could talk about that all day. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> I admire you just more and more for that reason. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> now, uh, are your brothers and sisters and parents still practicing Muslim? Yes, they are still. They are still Muslim. And how, do some of them live here in the United States? One of my brothers, he lives in Dearborn, Michigan. In Michigan. And um, tell us a little bit of what, what your brothers and sisters do. In, they live still in Syria? Uh, most of them, they still live in Syria now. It's it's hard situation, but, the, but they are safe now, I think. Okay, good. Yeah. Good. And um, so you have this wonderful story about you know, growing up in a Muslim home and really yes. diligently for the first 34 years of your life pursuing your, your faith as a Muslim. Yeah, I used to practice Islam, go to the mosque, like reading the Quran, have classes, and for many years in my life. Many, many years. And yeah. then some people came into your life. Tell us a little bit about that story. Yeah, it's like when... It's, it's a long journey where God was dealing in my life. So I was, sometimes I practice Islam, sometimes I stopped. Until I met a, a student writer, so he helped me to understand, to go outside of the circle in in best way. But at his house one day, I met a two American. Two American couples. Couples. And the... The moment I saw them, I felt like they have something different, and I wanted to be their friend. They were missionaries, new missionaries in Syria, but I didn't know that concept of missionaries, of course. But they were new in Syria, and I, I felt like they have something different. So did you get that? So he meets these two couples. They're from America. They're missionaries, but he has no understanding of that. But he sees something about their life that immediately he's drawn to, and he wants for himself. Okay, tell us. Yeah, exactly. You feel like when, when you see, when you talk about the fruit of the Spirit, this is what I found on them. So I didn't know, of course, about that. You didn't know about the fruit, but you exactly. were Exactly, but I saw something. I saw how much they have love and compassion, and it took us a long time until we became a good, good friends, because they were new in Syria, their Arabic wasn't good, but I was like focusing, wanted always to be their friend, and I was watching their life. And I saw how much they have love to people. Mm. And they live in Damascus, you know, they live among us, and they love the people, build a relationship with them, invite them to their house. So I was watching their life, and I felt like, wow, they are really good and different. He was really watching their life. Yes. That's so big. Yeah. That's really good. So then you eventually get into like a study with them or you're practicing no, Arabic? I, my and... English wasn't good at that time. And so I asked my friend, his name is Dan, I said, do you know someone who wants to learn Arabic and I can help him, he can help me in English? So he introduced me to a friend who was new in Damascus. He was studying Arabic, his name is Dustin. So we started meeting every week, every Tuesday at a cafe. So he speaks in, in Arabic, I speak in English, and we help each other. Until one day we started talking about religion. And he 
I shared with him, like, at that time, I had a lot of doubts of Islam, so I stopped being, considering myself a Muslim. So I said to him, I, I had a lot of doubts about Islam. I don't believe in that. And he started sharing with me his faith, and he didn't say a lot of things. He just drew on a paper the bridge illustration. You know the bridge illustration? So for those of you who don't understand, uh, just a, it's a real simple way of explaining the faith of Christianity. It's called the bridge. And so his friend drew out on a piece of paper this idea that God and human beings have been separated from each other because of sin, but God in his love built a bridge from himself to human beings, and that bridge is Jesus Christ and the cross. And that bridge allows human beings to come into a relationship with God through the forgiveness of sin. And that's what he drew for you, right? Exactly. And it was really like a flashlight for me. You know, he told me later that when he went back home, he said to his wife, maybe I said something stupid today. I should have some, said something better. <laughs> I do that every Sunday. I go home to my wife and say, I'm pretty sure I said something stupid today. But he didn't know that. What he said is exactly what I needed at that time. God knows that. And it was a beginning for me because I, re I read about Christianity. I didn't get this idea about Jesus that he is a pledge and all the concepts. So I started asking another American friend who lives in Damascus. I said, can you give me the Bible? I want to read it. And he gave me the Bible and he said, if you want, we can read together. I said, okay. So I started going to his house every Monday and I brought my friends, Muslims, with me. We started meeting weekly at his house, reading the Bible together. And he gave me a lot of books and I was reading a lot. So during like six months of that, time I was reading about 13 hours a day. I wanted to know, you know, an answer for every question I have about Christianity. I wanted to know everything. So reading the Bible and reading all the books because I want to understand this. Okay, so for 34 years you had pursued Islam, you found it to be somewhat disappointing, so you started looking elsewhere. Yes. You get introduced to these, this Christian missionary he explains but to it you took us a long time, like, you know, yeah, since so I met, first time I met them till God saved me, about eight years eight of years. relationship until God saved me. Again, that's so profound for us to understand that this doesn't rarely happens overnight. Yes. It's through the investment of a relationship and really understanding, appreciating a person's questions and doubts and helping them with an understanding of the scriptures. Eight years. And then... Yeah, when, when, one day when I was reading at my friend's house, and I asked him, can I do the opening prayer at that time? I didn't know what I, why I said that. <laughs> I said, yeah, of course. So I said, exactly. I said, God, forgive me, but I don't know you. Mm. But I want to know you. Please help me. And I felt so emotional. Like, you know, I started crying. I went to the restroom, crying, and went back and continued reading and went back home, spent all the day like reading too. And the next day I met another friend and one of them, he's a believer. He said to me like, are you a believer? I said, no, but I wish. Hmm. During these six months, intellectually I understand everything and I believe that's truth, but I didn't feel it. So when I said that, well, that was on Tuesday. So from Tuesday till Friday morning, I couldn't sleep. And I felt like God was bringing everything I read about him, about Christianity, about Jesus to my mind, until Friday morning I felt it, not in my, I felt it in my heart that yes, I believe Jesus is my savior.
And you became a Christian. Yeah, and that was the beginning for another journey. Yeah, started a whole new chapter in your life. Tell yeah. us what brings you to the United States. Uh, when God saved me, I wasn't married. So, and I had a problem how to get married. I wanted to get married. So, but after that, I, I met an Iraqi refugee in Syria. And she was applying to come to America before we get married. So we, she was from, she from a Muslim background. I met her before she became a believer. She became a believer, and so then we get engaged. We got baptized together, and we, get, we did our wedding ceremony at the church. And she came to America before she got her visa. And we were separated about three years until I got my visa. Mm. During his, her, her life here in America, she, she went first to Minnesota and then San Antonio. And she went through a bad, bad time with her. And she didn't get, like she was offended by the Christian and they didn't love her well, they didn't treat her as she was expecting that. So finally she, she met an Iraqi family, Muslim family who they stopped, start helping her and she moved with them to San Antonio. And but th during that time, she felt like God is punishing her because she left Islam. And this is because the only people who help her are the Muslims family. And she get offended a lot from Christian. And so when I came here, we were separate about three years until I got my visa. And I came here and I found that she denied her faith and she went back to Islam. And she said to me, if you don't go, go back to Islam, I cannot be your wife. I tried with her about a year, she didn't change her mind, and finally we have to get divorced. Hmm. And that's why I am in America. So she comes to America as a refugee, she reaches out to the church as, she's a Christian, she reached out yes. to the church and was not served well. They didn't know how to deal with her. Okay. Like, you know, they were treating her that she's American, she understands the culture, the system, but she's not. They were assuming way too much yeah, of her Yeah, exactly, so she was offended a lot by how they deal so with she's her. heard by the church she meets a muslim family, muslim family and, and they and take care of her in ways that really make sense exactly. to her and she ends up going back to the muslim yes yeah. that's that's uh what happened yeah real quickly tell me about the work that you're doing here in san Antonio. uh now first because i'm from a muslim background so i understand the muslims and i understand, understand the islam and i think my call from god is to reach out the muslims and also because of what happened with my wife, that brings to me like, I need to help Christians to understand those people, how to reach out the Muslims. So I, I connect the church with the refugee community, especially and the Muslims, and help the church to understand those people and how to share the gospel with them. And you talk about like, we have to love them first. And this is exactly what I want to do, I connect the church with the refugees and build a relationship. And through that, they can see Jesus in our life even before we start talking about Jesus. So that's my focus on my ministry. Yeah, so your calling is to help the church better understand how to serve the exactly. refugee community, in particular Muslims, because of your experience. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I do that through like, I started doing like barbecue events and bring them together. And I call it like equally relationship because it's not about someone who wants to give and someone who wants to take. 
they come together as friends and sit together, eat together, and start building a relationship yeah. and go from there. Like, yeah, so some of you may remember serving Sunday. Um, we had a barbecue for the refugees, many of them Muslim. Uh, Hussam hosted that. A lot of you showed up for that. It was a wonderful experience. And if you weren't able to make it that day or would like to try that again, well, guess what? This coming Saturday, Hassan yeah. is hosting we'll another uh, barbecue, and you're welcome. We can give you details about Yeah, this, this coming Saturday, we will start from 3 p.m. 3 p.m., yeah. and it's absolutely delicious. Meal. It's a good time to, to, to meet those people and start build yeah. a relationship, be friends with them, and yeah. love them. It was really fun. I was glad I was there a couple yeah, weeks ago. It was well, Hassan, I thank you so much. Personally, I thank you for the help that you've given oh, my to pleasure. me my pleasure. to better understand a refugee community here in San Antonio, and particularly Muslims. Thanks for you know, checking all of my work before today's oh, message. My <laughs> uh, I hope I did okay and represented yeah, you, you it accurately. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. Well, let, let me you. pray for you, and yes. let me ask you all to stand together. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this wonderful community that you've called us to live in. And I pray that you'll help all of us to understand that you have divinely appointed our life at the job that we're in or the school we attend, the neighbors we live next door to, the people that we encounter in the restaurants that we most frequent. You've invited us to be your ambassadors of your outrageous love and grace to others. Yes. And God, I pray that you'll teach us how to be more sensitive and more open and more com compassionate and caring to all of our neighbors, particularly those who may be from our other parts in the world who have come to our country and everything's so new and different. Yes. So God, I pray as we encounter our friends and neighbors who are Muslim, that you'll give us a greater understanding of their faith and how important it is to their life. And then in just loving them well, I pray, Father, for doors of opportunity to be opened up to introduce them to the grace of Jesus Christ. God, thank you so much for his psalm, and we ask for your blessing upon his life and his ministry in this area. And I just ask some wonderful things will come forward from the time that you grant him in this area to have um, an impact on the lives of people that he serves. And we pray and ask all of this in the name of Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. All right, Amen. gang, we'll Thank see you. you next Sunday. Hope you'll be with us. Thanks again. Thanks.